0: Dr. Kumar Vasudevan is a neurosurgeon practicing in Atlanta. He has a special interest in treating patients with brain tumors. He was inspired by his grandmother's neurosurgeon, who performed a life-saving operation for a glioblastoma for free and aspires to bring the same devotion and care to his patients. Kumar, thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I would love to go back and hear more about this story with your grandmother.
1: It, it was a story that really uh, was my inspiration for wanting to go to medical school, and in particular, what turned me on to studying the brain. Um, when I was quite young, uh, my my grandmother, you know, unfortunately received this diagnosis of a of a glioblastoma, um, and was at the time of her diagnosis uh, suffering from seizures as well. As you mentioned, uh, we, my family was at a bit of a loss, of course, for what to do, as many families are in this kind of situation. And uh, my grandmother was an immigrant and uh, didn't have insurance. My parents met a just a fantastic neurosurgeon who's now retired but was in Buffalo, New York, and saw uh, that help was needed and stepped in and, and just did a, a magnificent job. and. You know, that the disease uh, is quite uh, an aggressive one, um, and she really fought hard, ultimately did succumb to the disease, but was able to preserve her quality of life, and, and I was so inspired by that and, and uh, what the doctors were able to do for her. It piqued my interest in in the brain, and um, although I found a lot of things very interesting since then, nothing quite interested me like the brain uh, and, and what they were able to do for her, and that kind of pushed me in this direction.
0: How old were you when your grandmother was diagnosed?
1: Uh, when she was diagnosed, I was um, eight or nine years old, I believe. She passed away when I was 11 years old.
0: Wow. So, I mean, a very malleable age, right? I mean,
1: if you've been I would, any younger. Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah.
0: Yeah, if you've been any younger, you might not have remembered um, as much. Can you talk to me a little bit about glioblastoma? Because the people I know who have been diagnosed with it uh, tend to be over the age of 55, but, but I don't know if that's common or not. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the disease itself?
1: Sure, glioblastoma is, uh, is a disease uh, that we call a primary brain tumor, which is a brain tumor that originates from the brain tissue itself. In the case of glioblastoma, we think it appears from the uh, arises from the uh, cells that support the neurons, which are the firing electrical cells within the brain. And it's a, a tumor that we classically see, as you said, in folks who are around 50 or 60 years old, uh, although uh, that can vary. We've seen it in folks who are younger and folks who are older as well. But uh, it is uh, a tumor that we have been fighting as neurosurgeons for as long as our field has been Uh, existent and struggling to uh, make some progress, however slowly, against what is a very uh, aggressive disease. And We have come a very long way in our understanding of how the disease behaves and what we can do to slow down the progression of the disease, and we continue the fight every day.
0: How is it usually diagnosed? Does the patient have symptoms or is it found accidentally?
1: Many of a number of different things. I've seen patients who uh, present for uh, any other reason to their physician. They have headaches that have gone unexplained. Uh, They have subtle symptoms that they and their families notice difficulty with their memory or with their speech or with moving one part of their body versus another. And that leads to getting a scan uh, of the head, which leads to this diagnosis. Other folks uh, may have very obvious and very scary symptoms like. Uh, seizures or stroke-like symptoms that cause them to seek medical attention. One of the very tough things about this diagnosis is it happens in folks many times who are otherwise healthy and just uh, didn't think that uh, something like this could be going on. They thought it was a, a small problem that needed to be checked up on and they end up with quite a dramatic diagnosis.
0: So when a patient comes to you your specialist and are they typically referred to you? And what is that first appointment like for patients?
1: So my the first appointment uh, with me for patients who, who have this suspected diagnosis of a glioblastoma is very much an information gathering session. Uh, I am almost always the first physician that they see for this problem because the first step in the treatment of this problem is typically surgery. Uh, and so, um, I spend a long time explaining what the possibilities are. I show my patients, uh, all of their imaging in, in detail and go over with them and tell them what I see and what I'm paying attention to, uh, to try to help them wrap their heads around, uh, what I think has been talked, usually has been talked to them so far in very abstract terms. And, uh, and then it becomes about preparing them for the process that is to come which is to say there are going to be some uh, major events in your life happening fairly quickly, be it a surgery, be it meeting many, many different doctors of different specialties, being radiotherapy, any of a number of different things. And my goal is not to say we need to act uh, yesterday. It is to say we have things that we need to do, we have homework that we need to do, and here is what your journey is going to look like. And we're going to learn things together about this tumor and what it's going to take to fight it every step along the way. Um, So I really tried to make uh, that first visit an introduction into what the rest of their care is going to be like.
0: Wow. It it sounds like you do a very thorough job. I know you mentioned before I hit record um, something about new therapies. So I would love for you to sort of talk about what you mean by that. I mean, are there exciting new developments in the research of glioblastoma?
1: There, uh, within the last few years, we have had uh, really a quantum leap in our understanding of the factors underlying glioblastoma and our understanding of many different types of glioblastoma that may exist. We're still at, beginning, of course, of our understanding of it, but it's progressing rapidly. For instance, until about 2009, 2010, uh, we tended to make the diagnosis of this tumor by looking at it under the microscope and saying, this is what it looks like. It looks like a glioblastoma. Since around that time, we have begun to understand that each of these tumors has a particular genetic signature and molecular signature that we can now understand and use that to help predict if it might respond to one type of chemotherapy versus another, if it might respond to one type of radiation versus another. How quickly we might expect it to uh, rear its ugly head again and therefore how carefully we need to watch for it. And so uh, while we are still learning how to best attack the disease with the tools that we have. Uh, These, this understanding of how the tumor behaves and the different subclasses that exist of this tumor is really going to revolutionize in the years to come what we're able to do for patients. In particular, on the horizon are uh, potentially targeted medications for the specific molecular or genetic abnormalities in individual patient's tumor. That is not very far off.
0: That sounds like a lot of work that's being done in other solid tumors. Would that be accurate to say?
1: I would say that's definitely accurate. Uh, any, I think, buddy who works in oncology will tell you about the uh, tremendous advances that have been made in lung cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, uh, and you may have uh, talked to other folks who who have been able to, to talk about that, uh, but it really um, We are, I would say, still catching up to many of those fields in glioblastoma care. Uh, But you're absolutely right to say that that sort of logic hopefully will carry through to our field as well.
0: And you mentioned subtypes. So how many subtypes do you know of as of today? And does it, you know, reside or start in a certain part of the brain or can it um, show up anywhere?
1: Glioblastoma as a tumor can show up really anywhere within the brain, except we tend to not see it in, for instance, the back part of the brain, but anywhere in the fore, uh, brain area, uh, the part of the brain that contributes to your speech, your motor function, your sensory function, any of those can potentially become involved by the tumor. To answer your question about the number of different subtypes. We now understand on the basis of a couple different mutations, for instance, one is called an IDH mutation um, that whether or not a certain tumor uh, possesses that mutation uh, predicts how well uh, we might expect it to respond to some of the chemotherapies that we do. There are other genetic abnormalities in particular that we that we look at, and the specific signature mixing and matching those uh, abnormalities or or genetic uh, information uh, can help us to stratify how we treat the disease. So uh, it's not that there are, you know, within glioblastoma type A, B, C, it is an evolving understanding of how these individual mutations play into our care.
0: Wow, interesting. When glioblastoma is diagnosed, is it typically early stage? Is it later stage? You know, depending on the cancer, um, liver cancer, for example, where I have the most experience as an advocate, is often diagnosed in later stages. Um, What is the situation for glioblastoma?
1: I would say that it varies quite a bit. Uh, I like to say about the brain that it's like real estate. You know, what matters is location, location, location. (sighs) Uh, and depending okay, on, I
0: should laugh, but that is so <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh,
1: and it really is. You know, th- <sighs> there can be uh, uh, there can be tumors that hide out in a particular spot in the brain because mm-hmm. in that particular location, it's less likely to cause symptoms, and we don't see those patients in, until those tumors have grown quite a bit to where they might cause symptoms. And the converse is also true that there are places within the brain that are. Uh, the, the information that is traveling there is very, very dense. And so even a very small tumor can cause quite dramatic symptoms uh, that cause these tumors to become, uh, discovered early. Uh, so I would say that it really varies depending on where this particular tumor decides to, to show up.
0: That makes perfect sense. Um, I want to ask you about genetics. I, because I think there's this myth that people just assume that cancer is genetic or just like a lot of things. It runs in my family. Is there any type of glioblastoma or any other type of brain cancer that has any genetic component to it?
1: So uh, there are certain types of brain tumors that are associated with genetic syndromes um, that are quite quite rare, quite uh, frankly. Um, And there are some tumors that we are beginning to understand may be more common that run in families, but we haven't discovered a specific syndrome attached to them. But I will say for glioblastoma, there are a very, very, very small percentage of cases that are associated with familial syndromes in which every single member of a family may have uh, a brain tumor of some kind. But the vast majority, the vast majority of glioblastoma cases are uh, in, in patients who do not have a family history, do not have anything that we have been able to identify as a risk factor for developing this disease. It is simply random. And that is true for the, uh, the vast majority of patients uh, that, that develop this disease. Do you
0: think that's hard for people that it's random?
1: Uh, Such a such a great question and and reads my mind perfectly in the sense that when I when I meet these folks, uh, the the one thing that without fail is said at every initial consultation is how could this happen? Because they are otherwise uh, very healthy people at at this particular stage in their life when the disease uh, pops up. Um, you know, they tend to have uh, children who are teenagers or uh, starting to have uh, grandchildren of their own, and they're, they're looking forward to getting started with that stage of their life and feeling good about it. That is very, very tough for patients, to say the very least, um, because it hits them like a ton of bricks.
0: Yeah, I bet. What has been your worst moment as a physician doing this work?
1: I'll say the worst moment uh, is also the hardest moment as as a physician, which is uh, when to stop, when to understand when you are no longer doing something for a patient and you're just doing something to a patient. I think that's a very fine uh, distinction that my mentors in neurosurgery have always uh, impressed upon me. The idea that because you have a tool that you can use if you're not going to do something to really help somebody enhance their quality of life and what their goals for their life want to be, you, you have to respect what what patients want. And so I think the hardest moment is when uh, you see an abnormality on a scan, you see uh, a symptom somebody's having and you say, I, I, can, I can potentially do something with my surgical tool set uh, to make this look better and to make me feel better about the way that it looks. When you talk to your patient and they say, this is not something that I want for my life, for my family, even the goals that I want to achieve for myself, to come to that realization with your patient and say, okay, I understand this is what we need to do, is very difficult when you've been told your entire training to go, 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 help, 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 and try to cure this thing. Uh, And I want to emphasize that If a patient ever says that to me or ever decides that it is in no way, shape or form giving up, it is no way, shape or form letting the disease win. It is respecting and understanding uh, what our patients consider to be important. And I think that is just as important part of anything I do in the operating room in in terms of the care of, of these patients.
0: I really appreciate you saying that because it's not easy for patients to often speak up, not just against doctor's advice, but often against their families and to say, you know, I don't want to continue X treatment. Um, and, And I've seen it happen firsthand. So I really appreciate you saying that. And it's a good segue here. So did medical school really prepare you to have those kinds of talks with patients and their families?
1: Yes and no, I think that medical schools are becoming increasingly aware, and I, you know, I went to one medical school, so I can only speak from my experience, but I think medical schools are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of that sort of thing in the total care of our patients, asking us as students to uh, be involved in those discussions, to sit in on those discussions, and to see uh, the emotional toll all of this takes on families and to gain a newfound respect for it. Uh, obviously, more can and should be done to incorporate that in medical students' uh, curriculums. I will say that you know, in in medical school for me, uh, because of the field that I wanted to go into, my experience, especially towards the end, when you get a chance to specialize a little bit, was very focused on on neurosurgery and trying to get more experience in neurosurgery. It, by way of doing that, you get exposed to a lot of these uh, these topics, and I think I had potentially a little bit extra exposure than many medical students might have just because of those specific experiences. So I would say I feel very lucky that uh, that I felt prepared and had a good foundation on which to learn more. Um, but uh, all of us, no matter how experienced we are, what level of medical education can stand to learn more about it.
0: I agree. Can you tell me about a patient who really touched you or perhaps change the way that you practice
1: there's quite a few i can think of um a young woman um who when i was a uh, as part of my training i spent a lot of time in our neurological icu um and uh, did some sub subspecialty work there on taking care of many of the sickest patients with uh, neurologic uh, problems and um, I can think of a young woman um, who's was actually married to uh, a medical trainee at the institution I was at. And um, she had just uh, given birth to her uh, third child and they had two young children at home. And right after the birth of her child uh, was diagnosed with a very serious uh, deep-seated brain tumor uh, that uh, an operation on it uh, would likely leave her permanently incapacitated. As surgeons and as the um, uh, the people who are taking care of her, uh, because she was so young and because we felt so uh, badly for a young woman in this particular situation going through everything, we we erred on the side of we, we want to try something interventional. We want to try to do something to treat this tumor and buy you some time um, to spend with your family. And this young woman who had this young family at home frustrated us a little bit in that uh, she was taking days (laughs) to talk to to her family and decide and think about what she wanted to do and ultimately came up with a very nuanced and very detailed way of thinking about how she did not want to pursue any sort of intervention for what this was. Just because of the risk profile that was involved and potentially causing her symptoms to where she couldn't enjoy the time that she had left with her young family. I was struck when I, because I was the one who had to go and kind of solicit this decision from her as to what you know what we were going to do going forward, and I was struck with the by the clarity uh, with which and and the resolve with which she was able to say, I fully understand everything you're telling me, and I have made the choice to prioritize going home and spending time with my family for the time that I have left. We see that a lot in in patients who are older, who have other medical comorbidities, who don't want to go through the risk of the treatment that we might propose, but to see it in a in a young woman who who had all of this in her life and to see the clarity with which she thought about it, presented her point of view and made known what her wishes for her care were in spite of everything that doctors said they could do to me was a very uh, striking moment and allowed me to say i need to listen very very carefully to what my patients desires wishes for their care are uh, because if we are honoring our oath as physicians as surgeons as people who have pledged uh, our lives to take care of other people we cannot ignore um, their priorities for their care as an essential part of that hope. Uh I think we, again, get caught up many times with what we can do, as opposed to what our patients' desires for their care uh, are. Uh, that, that moment comes to my mind.
0: How old was she?
1: Uh, she was in her early 30s, uh, and I happened to be in my early 30s at the time. Uh, that made it particularly striking.
0: And how long did she end up living with the diagnosis?
1: I heard from her family that she passed away about nine months later.
0: Wow. Gosh, I just got chills, but I bet those were some really good nine months. Do you know what I mean?
1: I certainly hope so, and um, I think they were based on everything that her her husband was able to share with me.
0: That's a great story. Um, Sad, but but just a a great story of, of really listening to what the patient wanted
1: course it's sad for for the outcome but I, I am very happy for her for the exact reason that you said uh, which is that we were able to give her what she wanted uh, at that point in her life which yeah. is the only thing that we can do
0: what is the one thing Kimara you wish you had known at the beginning of your journey as a physician in, in this in this field in this specialty
1: I think when I started this journey I was uh, I had the understanding of the medical profession that I think uh, many people uh, many people are starting their journeys do, which is that there's a lot to learn. Uh, there's a lot of tests, there's a lot of homework, there's a lot of time spent in front of a book. I was prepared for that. But I wish I knew that that is not the difficult part of this job. Many, many people can and do uh, have the desire to put in the work to, to make it happen. I think I wish I knew that the hardest part of this job was to make what's in those books work for the patient that's in front of you uh, in a way that, again, honors their wishes, honors the social situation that they're in, honors the family support that they have. That is the art. That's, that stuff uh, <laughs> You know, cannot be taught in your medical school, cannot be taught in your residency. It is taught by struggling struggling alongside your patients. And I by, in no way, shape or form want to imply that uh, what I am doing is, uh, is in any way comparable to what my patients go through. They, they struggle and inspire us every single day uh, w- with what they, um, what they face, but struggling alongside the patient to, to take the knowledge that I have of, of what we ideally would like to do uh, and making it work for the patient that's sitting in front of me Uh, is by far uh, the most difficult but also the most rewarding part of my job. Uh, I wish I knew that 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 would be more fulfilling than than anything I could learn about brain tumors or about neurosurgery.
0: Oh, I love that. I love it. And I love that you use the word art because I feel like if you are a clinician who sees patients as opposed to someone who only does research, that there is the science of being a doctor and knowing what, you know, how to diagnose someone and what medicine to give and what to do. But there really is an art to actually working with the patient and having that relationship with your patient and understanding that every patient is different, even if they have the same diagnosis, that no two people are the same.
1: That's um, very well and I think
0: That's what separates the, thank you. Thank you. I think that's what separates the okay doctors from the really great doctors. So I'm so curious to ask you this question as a doctor. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why?
1: I would make it easier for um, doctors and patients to communicate with each other, whether that is through some sort of centralized platform whether that is through uh, social media or other technology tools, there is so much care happening within our system. We have such great ways of taking care of patients, but the devil is in the details. The, The important things that we need to understand and miss, what medications are my patients taking? Who last changed the dosage? What was the effect of that change of dosage? What procedure did they last have? Which doctor is looking after them for this? Which doctor made the suggestion that this might be the diagnosis? What tests have already been run so I don't have to repeat those tests and save my patients time, money, energy? Those sorts of things, uh, while very simple, I think would enhance patient care tremendously, would save doctors time and heartache, would save more importantly, patients time, energy and heartache. I feel many, many patients do such an excellent job of advocating for themselves and making sure that their doctors are talking to each other and know those details, but just as many patients are left a little bit by the wayside because those details fall away from the forefront to the point where um, doctors and clinicians who are trying to do their very best don't see the all, all the information that they need to because it's lost out there in the ether.
0: Okay, I love that and that leads me to an additional question. So what is your opinion about EHRs?
1: (laughs) How long do you have? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They are tremendously important. I think they have uh, changed patient care a lot, but I think that uh, many doctors, I think will tell you the same thing, which is that they have evolved for uh, ease of billing, and ease of making sure that the things that we do uh, get compensated, which of course is very important, but I think that their uh, development has been skewed in that direction as opposed to what clinicians need to do to actually take care of patients. If you haven't spoken to many clinicians uh, already, then as you do, I'm sure you will hear about the endless amount of time that we spent checking boxes, filling out things that do not change the way in which we think about patients or communicate with patients or other providers uh, but are simply to fulfill an arbitrary requirement on the behalf of uh, of an EHR. I think the intention of everybody involved in the creation of these systems is good, uh, but I think uh, more input uh, needs to be taken from clinicians and more focus needs to be made uh, on the uh, patient care side of things uh, with with all of these systems. That'll that'll be me capping my comments. <laughs>
0: Tell you what frustrates me as a patient and also as an advocate. I have had many situations where the doctor I'm seeing in front of me, it's usually a specialist and they can't see a test that I recently had, even though it's in the same network, the same building, (laughs) the office is one floor up and because they use a different EHR system, they can't see it. And I can't count how many times I've had to pull up something on my phone and say, here, here you go. Or I've gotten better about making sure my primary care doctor gets everything, but the rest of them, they don't communicate with each other. And I don't understand Mm -hmm. how that's possible in the same network, same insurance, same building. I, I don't get it. So as a patient, I find it extremely frustrating.
1: Uh, and you I'm sure your doctors find it uh, just as frustrating.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just loving this conversation. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Please. All right, here we go. Beach, desert or mountains?
1: Uh, mountains with my family.
0: Beach boys, beetles or Rolling Stones?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, I'll say the Beach Boys just because I've probably heard it more (laughs) often with my friends and family.
0: What is one word that best describes you? Driven. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: Oh, that's, wow.
0: (laughs) This is what trips people
1: up. Yeah, I'll I'll say, uh, well, Around my house, uh, you know, we, we spoke Hindi growing up and listened to a lot of Hindi music, and so uh, my favorite Hindi song is a song called Mitva, which uh, means friend, and uh, that's a song that I would love to listen to again.
0: Oh, I love it. Very cool. <laughs> and before you die, the last meal you want to eat?
1: My my mom's Indian food.
0: And the last person you want to see?
1: Uh, do I have to pick between my wife and my daughter? <laughs> No, uh, no,
0: you don't.
1: Because <laughs> um, I might be in trouble if I, if I pick one or the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> the last words you will speak. Uh,
1: I love you, probably.
0: And aside from cancer, you, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I also want you to be sure to let people know how to get in touch with you.
1: Sure. There's a lot of... Tremendous organizations out there specifically for brain tumors, the uh, American Brain Tumor Association. Coincidentally, we're in the middle of Brain Tumor Awareness Month now in May, and, and they have a lot of great resources for patients. And, and uh, I would strongly suggest anybody uh, in need of their support looks them up It's the ABTA online. Uh, as far as uh, for me, I have a, a website uh, that's launching uh, shortly for my practice. It's just uh, drvneurosurgery.com, so drvneurosurgery.com. Uh, if I can be of help to anybody, I, I would love to, even if it just means a phone conversation or uh, sending me some pictures to look at. I'm happy to be as helpful as I can. Um, and so my contact information, ways Great. of getting in touch with me would be available on that website.
0: We lost Kumar. He had to call in through his cell phone. We will be sure to add the links he mentioned in the workshop and the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers.